Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Positive potentials of AI in healthcare are breathtaking. From smoother processes to more accurate care with fewer medical errors. But if we learned anything from the last 15 years of living with social media, it is that the development of algorithms without proper regulation can have negative impacts on society. In healthcare, AI development is still in early stages. Many regulation-related questions still need to be addressed. It is not easy to create regulation because it needs to take into account all sorts of aspects, safety, trust values of the environment it is designed for. In today's episode, you'll hear a discussion with Bart De Vite, founder of Hippo AI Foundation, a non-profit organization which fights for making medical knowledge openly available and making AI-based healthcare a common good. This is a diametrically opposing approach to the direction of current medical AI development the majority of which focus on privatization of medical knowledge. Bart and I discussed what exactly does it mean to have open AI models, how can we create environment to support that, the state of AI regulation in Europe and more. Enjoy the show and if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about the next episode automatically. Now to Bart. So Bart, most people know you have been fighting against knowledge privatization in healthcare. You're a strong proponent for open data and open algorithms. So we beat the inequality or inequity to care. And for those that do not know you, can you elaborate further what exactly you and the Hippo Foundation are fighting for? Yeah, good morning. This is uh, amazing to be back. I can't believe it's, I think, two and a half years since we last spoke, and that was before COVID. And so my name is Bart Witter. I used to work for Big Tech, and I completely changed directions. I founded a nonprofit because I want to try to solve the problem of high-term information asymmetries. This means that I believe that life-saving knowledge should be open and accessible to all. So there should be no asymmetry to access that knowledge. So I've set up an organization named after Hippocrates, who was the founding father of modern medicine, but also he was the founding father for the ethics. Uh, and one of his principles was that physicians needed to share the knowledge with their peers without any economic interest. And that's what I'm trying to replicate when we develop such an important technology as AI. What caused that shift in your thinking? Going from question, you know, the industry... Uh... Well, it's not only from the industry. I'm an early adopter on technology. And I was um, in 2009, I think I was tracking my sleep with a device called Zeno, which was a startup. I, I visited Silicon Valley since 2000, where all these health innovations using internet technology came up. And then with that sleep tracker, I was measuring for one and a half year my sleep, giving really sensitive information. And then when the company got bankrupt, I started to read the terms and conditions and discovered that all that sensitive data was an asset that could be sold after bankruptcy. Then I found the research that 
in uh, normal cases that data is being sold to 50 different data brokers. That was the first time I experienced it. I was not able to control my sensitive data anymore. The second one was my experience with 23andMe, where I joined in 2009, which was really early, and I paid quite a lot of money back then to uh, use that service. And I thought I wasn't the product. And then in 2014, they changed their business model by selling that data to largest pharmaceutical companies for three-digit number of bill- millions. And I said, oh, oh, suddenly I became, from being a customer, a product. Uh, that led me to think that we need, perhaps in healthcare, a, a very different way of building uh, businesses. And the normal internet business model where you monetize on data and create informational symmetry is perhaps not really um, the right basis to start with because it's a, a, a principle or a system that is designed uh, for inequality. Uh, of course, GDPR helped us uh, to overcome part of this thing. Uh, a few years ago, Google bought Fitbit. I used Fitbit for two years. I never received any email that my data has been transferred to Google to ask me for approval, what normally, uh, according to GDPR, should happen. There's a lot of data accumulations going on that follow capital concentrations. And my biggest fear is that we end up in a monopoly of our life-saving knowledge in five to ten years. Can you talk a little bit more about the term that you often use, and that's data colonialism? How does it go into the the story that you um, explained so far? Yeah, Data colonialism, I discovered it in a book, uh, The Cost of Connection, from one of our advisory board members, Professor Nicolri from the London School. He coined that term because he compared the ongoing invisible war for digital territory with uh, that one happened in colonialism. That means that there is an appropriation of an asset, and these assets are data by capital. So that means that richer organizations, just as in the colonial, richer countries were able to access uh, resources, which is now data, uh, and that is being appropriated and privatized. This causes then even further asymmetries and dependencies, and that's what's happening when, uh, for example, Google goes to India and offers the AI service for people who have no other choice than using the service because they don't have access to ophthalmologists, uh, and they're using the AI service of Google, but the data itself is extracted out of India and the value creation is in Mountain View, California, not in India. And and if you compare these two systems, uh, the historical colonial system, and that's what's happening here, there is an analogy here that helps people to understand that perhaps if we want to design digital systems, we should uh, do this in a decolonialized way and uh, a much more sustainable one. How do you see that would be possible in the future, given that at the moment, even if we are asked for a consent about our data, and I speak broadly when saying that, so on social media, on services that you use, so it's not like you really have a choice. You either comply with the terms or can't use the service. So it's not really a consent that is avoidable. So how do you see that translating to to healthcare where digitalization efforts and applications are still in relatively early stages? Yeah, I agree that it's still early stage. And I agree that people tend to uh, accept terms and conditions um, thinking there are no alternatives. I disagree that there are no alternatives because if you look at the uh, communication tools that we use, there is WhatsApp and Signal and Telegram. And people, although they are not agreeing with the ethical uh, views of uh, the mother company Meta from WhatsApp, I know that perhaps that company is using a metadata that connects WhatsApp data and metadata with other other platforms. 
they still don't want to switch. And, and the, the main thing is here, convenience. And I think what we need is uh, more literacy. We need data literacy. We need uh, digital literacy, but not in the terms of uh, that we create better consumers. We will need to educate children and even the political decision makers, because that's where perhaps the most knowledge gaps are, that there are differentiations to be made here and that we need to really watch out which kind of terms uh, and consent we give. And that is a wide, very wide discussion because consent is given when you download an app and you accept the terms and conditions and mostly there is a part there for your data consent. But consent is also given, for example, in healthcare where you say, do you want to give your data for research? But research is such a broad term now because all AI is research. It's data science. If that data science leads to IP or private services, that is not that differentiation is not made. And mostly these consent documents also include that physicians should not, patients should not participate in financial gains of the outcomes of that data, which is okay, but still there are alternatives out there. And, and I'm trying to build up such an alternative. And I believe that the further we will progress, that there will be more demand for that alternative. And the reason why I believe this is that for the simple reason, if you equal data to capital, data gets scarce uh, because the really good golden data sets are being sold sometimes really exclusively. And if we know that the Fitbit data is gone, but uh, most of the deals that I know from medical universities in Europe have confirmed that they last year got offers from Google, very lucrative contracts where uh, Google was asking them to access pathology data, but the contracts being made would have been to not allow the data to be reached for other AI modeling. So it was an exclusive contract. And, and the more this happens, the more data is going to be scarce. So people are going to look for alternatives. There was also a recent report from uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers last year. The startup monitor in Germany, and they already confirmed that two-thirds of the startups don't have access to data. They, that is a problem that will continue to grow um, if we continue that path of data monetization. And what is the alternative that you are trying to, to build? So recently, the Hippo AI Foundation formed a partnership with the Confederation of Laboratories for Artificial Intelligence Research in Europe, CLARE, uh, with the aim to facilitate the creation of a world-class open medical AI ecosystem in Europe. So let's try to explore that a little bit. How could an open medical AI ecosystem look like? Yeah, that's the problem uh, that I try to solve. So, like, how do you build an alternative system? Um, and that's has been my journey. And the problem is here with AI that you have two layers. You have a content layer, which is data. And then you have the logical layer, which is the, the software called the algorithm. And then most open source licenses that are already on, on, on um, the market, it's not in the market, but like out in the public domain, don't connect both. Like, there are open source database licenses. There are open source, but... There is no open source license that connects both. And that's what we did. We said, if we want to create radical open systems, data needs to flow. And, and everybody in Europe talks about data flowing and interoperability, but they forget part of the economics. Uh, you can have uh, super in, in interoperable systems, but if data has value, nobody will share that data because it's going to give them an advantage. So try to do is to create a new license model. It's the HIPAA license. That um, is the license that we uh, put on the data that we will publish. And that uh, means that all the derivatives of that data 
that we publish needs to be published on the same license. That's a copyleft license that's well-known and well-used and successful. But what we added is that all the AI models trained in our data needs to be openly public and the learnings needs to be shared. That means that those who use our data are by license, they are licensees, obliged to um, always share the um, gains that they find out of that specific data. And that means that you create an open ecosystem that where perhaps 20, 100, whatever companies are not competing for that life-saving knowledge, but are kind of following an approach which are called shared R&D. Open source is nothing else than sharing your R&D costs and putting your resources together in a pool, in a project, where you reduce the R&D cost and you share the findings. That's the technical way how we want to approach this. And there is much, much more dimensions because we need consent, we need campaigns, we need patient awareness, we need industry support. So I've put a list of a lot of people a few years, two years ago that we started to test as like with a startup. Um, one of the last hypotheses is, is that can we convince a, a big corporate to join and open their data and join such a project? And we convinced AstraZeneca to join our breast cancer project that will be communicated more loud, but we first want to achieve results. But they are supporting our project and they will open up data that they never opened up before. It is actually a, a reinvention of a, a principle that our European health systems is based on, and that principle is solidarity. Without mutual sharing there is no solidarity and if people ask for data donations but that company doesn't share that same kind of thing that back then that, that has nothing to do with donations or solidarity that is has to do with appropriation um, and that's a, diff a very different term during the journey was interesting because what we actually are doing is um, understanding the cultural system that we are moving in healthcare in europe is Based on solidarity, physicians have always published their research openly prior to these licenses of publications coming up. But we are trying to build a system that is much more embedded within the value system of the European healthcare system, as opposed to a value system that comes from a very different region that is based on laissez-faire capitalism, which is not something that is combinable with healthcare for all principles. How do you envision that AI experts, practitioners, researchers, entrepreneurs will join your foundation and the collaboration that you have with Claire, the open ecosystem? How can you even surveil that everything is shared back in terms of algorithms that are produced based on the available data? We don't want to become a surveillance company that uh, uh, has linked us to surveil license abuse. There is forensic technology that we have been looking at to put in the data, like putting a watermark in the data that is invisible. So uh, the effects of certain algorithms can be detected by data leaks then in that sense. So we see that uh, somebody uses that data to train their models. But I've been a product manager big tech companies myself and as a peer as a, a product manager um, i worked 10 years for ibm and i can tell you one thing if you want to put a product to market these companies have a lot of compliance processes internally and there will be no product being brought to market that abuses any licenses so the idea that these companies will abuse open source licenses is absurd because the risk that these companies would take if they abuse licenses and you can prove that, you could win quite a lot of money from them and bringing them to court.
part. That's too much of a risk. And, and these companies are not crooks in that sense. They play with their views and, and, and we play with our views. And the second part that you asked in your question is how do you convince people to join? That was very interesting to see during COVID that there was so much open source development. So even the sequenced uh, COVID virus was public, published as open data by the Chinese research teams. And without that open publication, we would not have seen that fast development of vaccines. There was a lot of collaboration and analysis and research papers suggest that that, that open collaboration was accelerated because we had a shared purpose. We had a shared enemy. And people used or tend when there's a shared enemy to collaborate better. During COVID, the virus was the enemy. The virus was attacking our freedom, our lifestyle, and that's what united people. Now, to bring a movement like Hippo AI forward, it's a lot about really creating narratives and creating a joint vision of what is that joint enemy and, and what is that what drives us together. And I think that joint enemy is, is for me, those people who don't like to see health inequalities being the standard. We have seen that with the mRNA vaccines, how unequal this world is in healthcare. But I think when we go digital, I can have a Zoom call with anybody in Africa and in Japan who has an internet connection. And I think as we progress in digitalization, we should redefine how we create value in that sense. And I think that's what will unite people that have that focus. And I'm not doing this for the generation that is mostly 60 year old plus, but there is a generation that is called the purpose generation. That's the millennial generation. That's those who have been pushing for a climate. They are much more purpose driven. They are much more looking at sustainability. And, and I think that's generation will also shift and push healthcare into a very different direction. I actually uh, intentionally used uh, the term surveillance earlier because one of the topics that is discussed a lot in the recent years is also the surveillance capitalism, the tracking of everything and everyone for gaining profits. And I wanted to transfer that to the field of healthcare. There's um, the expectation that with AI, we're going to have uh, more optimized systems. You can optimize processes. There's so many innovations efficiencies that there's no doubt that these kind of approaches are needed. But if you look at the doctor's perspective now, being a doctor or being a nurse means that you are con continuously monitored, you get reports about your performance, and that is making the profession that should be very humane, very unattractive, it's very burdensome, and we already see that clinicians are leaving the medical practice because of this as well, on top of all the other difficulties that the job presents. And at the same time, if we are dealing with the healthcare workforce shortages that are really becoming a graver problem every day. I wonder to which extent can, you know, adding more uh, unfriendliness in the surveillance sense, how can that hinder the challenges that uh, healthcare currently has? What's your view on that? Surveillance in that sense is not bad in healthcare because public health systems are being monitored all the time, so being surveilled. It's the combination of surveillance and capitalism that is perhaps um, the term that we are discussing here and if surveillance leads to again that, that term that I always call information asymmetries which comes from uh, Joseph Stiglitz who won the Nobel Prize for Economics he coined that that this is how companies create economical value in that sense because you more than the others that's how you bargain that's how you deal but if you use 
what somebody called godlike technology. Today's technology is so powerful that you can abuse any kind of human weakness. And, and with social media, this has been the attention. So you want to hack the attention of a human so you can bring him as much to your app as possible so you can sell more advertisements. And that means that these information asymmetries are being used to serve the business model, to create these power asymmetries between the clients and the uh, provider of these services. And that has completely gone out of hand in social media. Um, and I think it will uh, even go in a, a factor 10 dimension higher once we enter the metaverse of Facebook, because the patterns were just being monitored and they look at all kinds of biometrical data, even voice analytics and face analytics will be used uh, to monitor your weaknesses. Uh, and, and that's gives a company a lot of power to do whatever they want to do to serve at the end their first purpose, which is increasing shareholder value. Um, and I think in, in healthcare surveillance for doctors as well, like, there are implantable defibrillators. There was a guy, a patient, I think 10 years ago, he was the first person that was fighting to get access to the data that his implantable fibrillator produced but the company Medtronic that brought this to market uh, closed that information and shared that information only with the physician. So you could only not get access to the data. You could only get access to the translated information the physician was telling you. Surveillance systems are not new in healthcare. And I was a quantified server. We surveilled ourselves. We monitored our data. At the time, in 2009, when we started quantified self, we did everything on Excel sheets and, and wrote our numbers. So... Surveillance is about learning through numbers and optimizing yourself. There is a huge promise in that. But as soon as you connect this to economical value, that's where things might go wrong. Even if the founders have really idealistic ideas, at the end, the investors will push you to bring this tool to much more profits. And I, I know in healthcare, there's this term being used, the uberfication of healthcare. Since a while, and everybody was excited. We're going to uberfy healthcare because it's much needed. Now, my friends in the Valley in San Francisco, uh, they said, I got the Uber ride at the beginning when they started for $15. Now, for the same route, I have to pay $75. And, and that's because Uber has a lot of information asymmetries, can control supply and demand, and they are just using that power to increase prices. And I think if we think about this in healthcare, I think this can go absolutely wrong. Because if you look at the US, for example, there is an information asymmetry protected by patents, even when it comes to producing insulin. Now the price of insulin went up 1,200% in the last 20 years, and it's a 100-year-old pattern. So there are things that in healthcare should not are brought to that same model where the information asymmetry that you create by surveillance will lead to more capital gains. Because if you do this, Hell breaks loose. <laughs> uh, and I think people, healthcare is not a market that is self-regulated in that sense. We see this in the US. The total cost of healthcare is 18% of the GDP. 40 million people are not insured. And 50% of the personal bankruptcies are created by healthcare costs. So the market doesn't self-regulate. And I think that's the specificity of healthcare. And we really need to watch out that we don't replicate that business model where Again, data uh, collection uh, or data accumulations follow capital concentrations. And that leads again to information symmetries, which 
over time leads to power asymmetries and abuse. A lot of that can be addressed through regulations. And I think the example that you made with drug pricing is uh, very evidently different in Europe than than it is in the US. And that's because the regulation is so uh, much different here than there. But without going into details, I do want to pick your brain on what you see that is happening in the field of AI regulation in Europe in the last few years. Obviously, Europe, as um, other markets, would like to be a leader in AI development. Obviously, we are far from that. So how do you see the regulation that's currently in place? What do you see are its strong points? And its weaknesses, the the thing that's often uh, mentioned is that ju- the regulation in Europe is much too rigid for innovators to create a lot. Yeah, I think it's true. If you look at the, the state of AI in Europe and you look at, for example, the number of referred, cited papers in research in AI and the last AI index that is published by Stanford show that last year China overtook the US um, uh, and Europe lags behind in the number of Papers, research papers are cited. So that tells something about the quality of the data. So Europe is uh, not catching up. China is accelerating in, in that area. The most papers that are novel, using novel techniques that I read, come from China. So there is this race going on. And that's based on first the research. And then secondly, the second number that is always or characteristic is used is to look at the number of investments. And then they tell that Europe is... Uh, shortfalling by 10 billion in the number of investments annually when it comes to investing in AI. I, I find this um, um, extremely difficult to only look at these two criteria when we are talking about so, such an important technology that will shape our future. And that's what Europe has been doing. They have been looking at uh, a lot of domains and connecting that to our fundamental rights, to our values. And yeah, nobody likes that. But do we really want to make the same mistake as we did with uh, social media, where GDPR came 10 years too late? I think we need to even accelerate in standardizing and setting a framework. The European Union has been working on that. If it's perfect, no. Is it, if it, it's done, probably not. There are two domains of regulations. One is the data regulation and the other one is the AI regulations. And I have um, contact to both teams in the European Commission actually focused on that. Uh, surprisingly, these teams don't really talk about a lot to each other. They are, so the data strategy and the AI strategy is not really an aligned strategy. But let me bring a bit of the focus on the regulations on data strategy. There is this Data Governance Act that was released in November last year. And there are some concepts in there that are really promising. So, for example, there is the concept of data trust, um, creating companies that actually collect data and then are a trusted organization for the citizens, for the users, so that data is not being abused. Within these data trust, there are different models. There are data trust as a data marketplace, and there are data trust for data altruism. And that's where my Hippo AI Foundation fits in. So we are a data trust. We con- con- collect data. We receive it for free. And we put that, we unite the data, we clean the data, we put that license on there. And that's purely altruistic driven uh, as a data trust for data altruism. These concepts are all out there on the AI regulatory side. It's still not quite clear in healthcare what is going to happen. Uh, there are still quite uncertainty. Uh, and uncertainty is definitely not a positive factor for uh, further investments. If things are not regulated, but it's going to be regulated and there are no standards, there are going to be standards. 
you, tell, you tend to put your investments on hold. And I think we really need to start working on standards. And um, what we should avoid is trying to catch up with the US and China and putting ourselves as Europe versus China versus the US because we are not comparable. We have, when it comes to healthcare, we have different fundamental rights. Like the data protection right is one part, but we have Article 35. Everybody in Europe has the fundamental right to get access to healthcare, which is the unique right that we as European citizens enjoy. Not anybody else has that. So that's a right that needs to be embedded perhaps in that regulatory framework. There are other values like solidarity, which I mentioned before, which is the principle where our systems are based on that can be ejected uh, to that. The problem is that I see is that there is uh, a huge influence in that agenda by Big Tech. There was a research paper published two years ago uh, that looked at the funding from ethic AI, um, research in ethics um, in AI, and they found out that 58% of all the uh, ethical research in AI is directly funded by Big Tech. In Germany, we can see this because the Technical University in Munich as a, a research center for AI and is 100% financed by Facebook. For me, coming from healthcare, that sounds like uh, American Tobacco financing public health research. That doesn't make any sense. So I think there is this huge lobby from Big Tech that is influencing. So it is not perfect. It is a compromise. What I'm missing is that the physicians or citizens are much more woke uh, to demand uh, our own rights in this. I've been very active. But who am I? Um, there needs to be much more NGOs and other organizations active in the field to perhaps define a very different strategy for Europe. And my hope is that if we are forcing standards, then my hope is that we enforce open standards. That means that if there is an RFP for an AI solution in a hospital, within that RFP, you can say, we want this open standard. We want your algorithms to be open. Um, and we can define this. There is nobody who can forbid this, that we want transparency. And most of all, in, in science, we want the ability to replicate that science. And that is by peer reviewing. And you can only peer review something if it's open. Um, and if we put this as a standard, we will advance much faster because openness accelerates. But at the same time, we protect our market from other providers who have made a business model out of these information asymmetries, and what I call our, this model of artificial scarcity. So there is still a lot of moving elements in Europe, but I'm quite positive that there is a strong will to go a different way when it comes to um, the development of AI, and that different way will be unique and embedded within our value system that we have in Europe. It's a very complex problem because, as you mentioned yourself, it all starts with data standards and we see that across Europe a desire or but not even the desire the realization about the positive effect of open standards is visible the former health minister in the UK Matt Hancock said last year that data should be separate from applications we see that Catalonia is taking approach with open data standards there's projects in Germany and all across Europe in that sense things are seem to be improving and but 
the basic component for AI development are is good data. And if you have the same standards or the same structure of the data, then you can develop those those algorithms. But just because somebody is using open standards, that still doesn't mean that the data is easily accessible. So how do you see that access to healthcare data for research purposes could be changed in the future? Because we need large amounts of data. Yeah, interoperability and standardization of data is not going to solve anything, uh, as I mentioned, because data will only flow if you demonetize it. If you get through demonetization a capital gain out of keeping that data, why should a company share it? There is no benefit. In the country, you will only lose. And then hoping that companies will become altruistic, then you didn't understand anything of markets, markets don't function that way. So it's really about economics here, if we want to solve it. And the economics here is really, that's what I'm trying to do. If we are publishing data sets under the HIPAA license, which will be released this year, then we get an ecosystem which is different. And this sounds for a lot of people crazy. Why should we do this? Well, I have been working 20 years in the software industry, I've seen this all happening before. In 1990s, there was a huge monopoly for Microsoft that that uh, um, was creating software that only ran on their own Microsoft web servers. Suddenly, IBM, a former employer, could not sell any of the hardware anymore because there was no open standard by Microsoft. It was all proprietary. And but as Microsoft and IBM used to partner, IBM never looked at developing their own software. So suddenly, they were detached. And Microsoft had over 60% market share of web servers. And then IBM decided, how are we going to solve this? How can we sell more hardware servers? And they started to support the Apache Foundation. They had 100 developers supporting in that open source movement. And that's where open source started to really become an important tool to create accepted open standards, because there are different ways of standardization. But this is really a standard that, um, like Apache Foundation or Linux, um, a Linux is um, over 90% of the web servers from the internet are running on Linux. So these kind of became standards. So I think we really need to de-economize these principles or use these open source learnings for the last 20 years because open source is not about them destroying the economical value. Open source is, I see this as a, a small way of doing R&D and it's called shared R&D. And the, the economical value creation should not be about owning life-saving knowledge in that sense. Anybody who has built a medical product and brought it to market knows how much effort you need to bring that product as a certified product to market. There is so much more that meets the eye that to bring an, a, a solution to market where AI is just a component of that. So if you can share that as a piece of software with others and you don't make it as something as your differentiation, like Google is doing, and that's the only USB they have, it's their algorithms. But you open this up, you tend probably to reduce your R&D cost, accelerate your innovation, and set uh, perhaps reference standards that people will be used because it's, uh, at the end, the best model that will win. And, and that's something that is, for a lot of people, hard to understand because I think open source is all about destroying economical opportunities, we have seen this discussion on the vaccine level where the governments or some people were asking to open the patterns of the vaccine so we could 
uh, solve this on a global perspective. Uh, it didn't happen, but I'm really happy that the team from Texas now uh, created a first open source vaccine that is now being tested in India. So these movements are coming, these open source movements, because it's all about collaborations of people that share a shared purpose. And, and they're globally co collaborating uh, in an altruistic mode and creating what we call digital goods or digital commons. Just like Wikipedia, it's the same thing. It's, it's a way how we can collaborate and create assets that are um, owned by the people, for the people, and are created of the people. It's a democratization process. Do you think that uh, there's a higher chance for this to succeed in Europe where we still, that's at least my impression, there's, as you said, more talk about uh, solidarity, about access to healthcare, and it's not that anything that you think of is the first thing that you would do is patented. Well, I, I don't have uh, anything against patents per se, but if the patents are based on just simple extractions out of data, which is not something that is needs a lot of effort and the data is siloed and it's only because somebody has a huge bunch of capital and can buy the data that he is able to create these patents, then the patenting system is failing. Because patents are really about uh, human creations, not about putting an algorithm on uh, our data that we produce. So I think to be able to be successful in Europe and follow these principles of solidarity and Article 35, we need much more awareness. We need much more, even within the political leadership, much more literacy. That's what I try to do. There are other people trying to do that. I think there are some good, really progressing developments. There's also more research that um, can be used for policymaking that kind of give a different direction because at the moment we are just copying a model that comes from Silicon Valley or which is a region that I appreciate a lot when it comes to innovation, but the Silicon Valley is not really well known for being an equitable society. When you look at how many homeless people there are, how many healthcare is distributed, these are not the values we need to import. I think as long as we remember who we are, where we come from, and what it is what makes us different, and start building on top of that and being very conscious and self-confident about our own way and we can emancipate, I have really good uh, feelings that we can do something much more uh, sustainable, much more innovative and differentiate to other markets. And at the end, you need products that people love. And who are the buyers of tools like AI? Mostly it's physicians and physicians. I've talked to many of them. If it's open and if the algorithms are open source and there are prospective studies out there, there is open data, so it's peer-reviewed, then there will be a higher level of trust to these applications and there will be a higher adoption. And that is not unique to you know, physicians everywhere in Europe, globally have been telling me that they prefer to use algorithms that are open and peer-reviewed and documented with prospective studies because that's just what they have been doing all their life. And on the patient side, you need the currency of trust and to create, there is a, 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 a stronger need for transparency. We know, you, you probably have asked yourself the question many times when you open up Facebook in the advertisements that you, about things you just talked about, then you say, oh, how did that happen? I never Googled it. And Facebook called it a conspiracy theory, but 
there is no answer because you cannot understand it because the algorithms are closed uh, and they are closed because they want to create these information asymmetries. So even if you want to go to court and open up these algorithms, it is impossible to open it up. If that happens in healthcare, we would go back to the Middle Ages. That's what we have since the Enlightenment have been fighting for is open access to information and knowledge. And, and the free flow of information is a fundamental right in our democracy. If you stop all these things, we get feudalism, what we had in the Middle Ages, and that's what some people are calling the tech feudalists. Um, that's what kind of is happening in the US. You started the Hippo Foundation um, and the efforts for open data, open algorithms with the initiative called Victoria 1.0. It's basically an initiative to collect breast cancer data and just uh, create as much research uh, as possible there to make care available to everyone. How far is that project today? How much data have you managed together to convince uh, stakeholders to contribute? And it's a, a project that we started as one of our, our test projects for our hypothesis. We um, named uh, the first project after a real person. Victoria is a 34-year-old breast cancer patient that came to me when she had cancer. And she said, you know what? I'm, I'm, everybody talks about when you get this diagnosed at a young age that you would be overwhelmed by fear and all these feelings. And she said, like, the only sentiment that I had, which was the strongest, I felt connected to all these other women who had the same uh, diagnosis that I had. But I asked myself the question, what if I would have been born in Africa? What if I would have been born in a country that didn't have access to the diagnostic capacities and the treatments that I had? I would probably not be here anymore. And so she said, can I join your mission? And I said, okay, let's go for this. And I already played with that idea to and tromopovize the project, which means that instead of talking about a database, we talk about Victoria 1.0. So the database is carrying the name of Victoria. And, and that's really important because we want to bring this close to the people. And Victoria now does a lot of talks and she spreads that knowledge. She became our co-founder. I, I let her join the Ebo I Foundation. And so she calls for helping her to let anybody, any women on this planet to get access to the same level first, the first step, diagnostic as she had. And she had her, her, uh, her two gene amplification diagnoses that she can do by pathology diagnostics. Uh, and that's the focus we have. We are building a pathology database that then will lead to the capacity and open AI reference models that uh, can be used in Ethiopia and other regions for replicating the diagnosis. So that is part of the um, all test procedure. How do you set up campaigns? How do you communicate? How do you scale communication through social media? All these things that you need to question. It is not a technical issue. <laughs> Collaboration is always based on narratives. I think Yuval Harari um, mentioned that beautifully in his books, we humans tend to differentiate from animals because we can go to war based on fictional stories. If you can create really strong narratives about open developments driven by patients, that is the goal. Then we try to collect community. And that has been working well. So we, we, get, we, we are approached by leading researchers who have golden standard data out of clinical studies, which is the highest level of data you can get. And now we are in the project where we are accumulating the data 
There was a lot of discussions between these physicians because they then tell that data is not really high quality coming from that institute. So you start feeling the uh, battles between these uh, kingdoms that are there. But that's part of the thing that we need to solve. How do you let these people collaborate? How do we agree on what is the gold standard data? How do you redistribute that data? How do you get the bias out of the data? All these kind of things. How do you make it more transparent? Uh, these are the things we are solving today. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. To learn more, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Stay tuned.